Section 21 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Verla Vieira. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Pianoforte and Chamber Music of the Romantic Period, Part 2. 3. Keyboard music now tended more and more away from the old chorale and polyphonic style, in which 18th century music was thought, toward a style which could take its rise from a keyed instrument with pedals. Weber and Schubert achieved only at times this complete freedom in their clavier music. It remained for Schumann, Liszt, and Chopin to reveal the peculiar richness of the piano. Their styles are widely differentiated yet all truly pianistic and supplementary one to the other. The differences can be derived from the personalities and the outward lives of the three men. Schumann was the unrestrained enthusiast, who was prevented by an accident from becoming a practicing virtuoso and was obliged to do his work in his workroom and his inner consciousness. Liszt was, above all, the man of the world, the man who loved to dominate people by his art and understood supremely well how to do it. Chopin was by nature too sensitive ever to be a public virtuoso. He reflected the Paris of the thirties in terms of the individual soul, where Liszt reflected it in terms of the crowd. Each of them loved his piano as an Arab his steed, in Liszt's words. Hence Schumann's music, while supremely pianistic, has little concern for outward effect, and was, in point of fact, slow in winning wide popularity. With an influential magazine and a virtuoso wife to preach and practice his music in the public ear, Schumann nevertheless had to see the more facile Mendelssohn win all the fame and outward success. Schumann's reputation was for many years an underground one, but he was too much a romantic enthusiast to make any concessions to the superficial taste of the concert hall or drawing room, and continued writing music which sounded badly unless it was very well played, and even then rather austerely separated the sheep from the goats among its hearers. Schumann is, above all, the pianist's pianist. The musical value and charm of his works is inextricably interwoven with the executant's delight in mastering it. Liszt is, of course, no less the technician than Schumann, in fact, much more completely the technician in his earlier years, but his was less the technique of pleasing the performer than of pleasing the audience. With a wizardry that has never been surpassed, he hit upon those resources of the piano which would dazzle and overpower. Very frequently, he adopts the too easy method of getting his effect, the crashing repeated chord and the superficial fireworks. None of Schumann's technical difficulties are without their absolute musical value. All of Liszt's, whether they convey the highest poetry or the utmost banality, are directed toward the applause of the crowd. Chopin is much more than the elegant salon pianist, which is the part of him that most frequently conditions his external form. He was the sensitive harp-string of his time, translating all its outward passions into terms of the inward emotions. Where Schumann had fancy, Chopin had sentiment or emotion. Chopin had little of Schumann's vivid interest in experimenting in pianistic resources for their own sake. Even his etudes are so preeminently musical and have so little relation to a pianistic method that they show little technical enthusiasm in the man. Chopin was interested in the technical possibilities of the piano 
only as a means of expressing his abounding sentiments and emotions. It is because he has so much to express, and such a great variety of it, that his music is of highest importance in the history of piano technique, and is probably the most subtly difficult of all pianoforte music. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that there are twenty pianists who can play the Liszt studies to one who can play those of Chopin. The technical demands he makes upon his instrument are always just enough to present his musical message and no more. Though he was utterly and solely of the piano, as neither Schumann nor Liszt was, he had neither the executant nor the public specifically in mind when he composed. Schumann's first 26 published works, covering most of the decade from 1830 to 1840, were almost exclusively for the piano. From the beginning, he showed his instinct for its technical possibilities. Opus 1, published in November 1831, was a set of variations, the theme being the musical spelling of the name of a woman friend of his, the Countess Abegg, perhaps as much a product of the imagination as was the music itself. The variations show the crudities of dilettantism as well as its enthusiasm and courage. They were far from being the formal mechanical variations of classical clavier music. No change of the theme, but has a musical and expressive beauty apart from its technical ingenuity. Especially, they reveal a vivid sense of what the piano could do, as distinguished from what the clavichord or harpsichord could do. Much better was Opus 2, the Papillon, or Butterflies, which is still popular on concert programs. All that is typical of Schumann the pianist is to be found in some measure in this opus too. For, besides the vivid joy they reveal in experimentation with pianistic effects, there is the fact that they came, by way of Schumann's colorful imagination, out of literature. Here was Romanticism going full tilt. From his earliest years, Schumann had adored his Jean-Paul. He had equally adored his piano. When he read the one, he heard the other echoing. This was precisely the origin of the Papillon, as Schumann confessed in letters to his friends. The various dances of Opus II are the portions of the masked dance of the conclusion of Jean-Paul's Flegeljara, not as program music, nor even as pictorial music, but in the vaguest way the creation of the sensitive musician under the stimulus of literature. Schumann attached no especial value to the fanciful titles which he gave much of his piano music. In his later revisions of it, he usually withdrew them altogether. He always insisted that the music, and not the literature, was the important thing in his music. The names which betitle his music were often afterthoughts. They were nearly always given in a playful spirit. The literary music of Schumann is not in the least music which expresses literature, but only music written by a sensitive musician under the creative stimulus of literature. The Butterflies of Opus II, Papillon, are by no means the flittering, showy butterflies common to salons of that day. They are free and fanciful dances, rich in harmonic and technical device, and rich especially in buoyant high spirits. The canons, the free melodic counterpoint, the recurrence of passages to give unity to the series, the broken or rolling chords, the spicy rhythmical devices, the blending of voices in a manner quite different from the polyphonic style of old, and the use of single anticipatory or suspended notes for changes of key. These gave evidence of what was to be the nature of Schumann's contribution to piano literature. From now on until 1839, when Schumann began to be absorbed in songwriting, there appeared at leisurely intervals piano works from his study, 
few of which are anything short of creations of genius. In the Intermezzi, his technical preoccupations were given fuller play. In the Davidsbundler Tanza, our old friends Florestan, Eusebius, and Meister Raro contribute pieces in their own special vein, all directed to the good cause of making war on the Philistines. In other words, asserting the claims of lovely music against those of mechanical music, and of technically scholarly music against those of sentimental salon music. Following this work came the Toccata, one of Schumann's earliest serious works later revised, an amazing achievement in point of technical virtuosity, based on a deep knowledge of Bach and polyphonic procedure, yet revealing the new Schumann in every bar. It proved that the young revolutionist who was emphasizing musical beauty over musical learning was not doing so because he was technically unequipped. He now wrote the Carnival, perhaps the most popular of Schumann's piano works, with Schumann's friends, including Clara Wieck, Chopin, and Paganini, appearing among the musical pictures. Schumann's humor is growing more noisy, for in the last movement, the whole group joined in an abusive March Against the Philistines to the tune of the old folk song When Grandfather Married Grandmother. Why should an avowed revolutionist take as his patron theme a song which praises the good old times when people knew naught of Mademoiselle and Madame and deprecates change? But the Romanticists, especially of Schumann's type, prided themselves on nothing more than their historical sense and their kinship with the past, especially the German past. Next came more ambitious piano works, and interspersed among them the Fantasiestück, fantasy pieces, containing some of Schumann's most characteristic numbers, and the brilliant symphonic etudes, masterpieces one and all, and still later the novelettes, the Faschingschwank, the well-known scenes from childhood, and the Chrysleriana. This group Schumann felt to be his finest work. It was taken, like the Papillon, from literature, this time E.T.A. Hoffman's Tales of the Eccentric Kapellmeister Chrysler. It is worthwhile to recall Hoffman's story as an example of the sort of literature to which Schumann responded musically. In Dr. B.'s words, quote, The garden into which the author leads us is full of tone and song. The stranger comes up to the young squire and tells him of many distant and unknown lands, and strange men and animals, and his speech dies away into a wonderful tone in which he expresses unknown and mysterious things, intelligibly, yet without words. But the castle maiden follows his enticements, and they meet every midnight at the old tree, none venturing to approach too near the strange melodies that sound therefrom. Then the castle maiden lies pierced through under the tree, and the lute is broken, but from her blood grow mosses of wonderful color over the stone, and the young Chrysostom hears the nightingale, which thereafter makes its nest and sings its songs in the tree. At home, his father is accompanying his old songs on the clavicimbal, and songs, mosses, and castle maiden are all fused in his mind into one. In the garden of tone and song, all sorts of internal melodies rise in his heart, and the murmur of the words gives them their breath. He tries to set them to the clavier, but they refuse to come forth from their hiding places. He closes the instrument and listens to see whether the songs will not now sound forth more clearly and brightly. For, I knew well that the tones must dwell there as if enchanted. Out of a world like this floated all sorts of compositions in Schumann's mind. A thousand threads run from all sides into this intimate web in which the whole lyrical devotion of a musical soul is interwoven. 
The piano is the orchestra of the heart. The joys and sorrows which are expressed in these pieces were never put into form with more sovereign power. For the external form, Bach gave the impulse. For the content, Hoffman. The garlanded roses of the middle section of number one, the shimmering blossoms of the inverted passage in the long summer of number two, the immeasurable depth of the emotions in the slow pieces, four and six, the bass unfettered by accent in the last bars of number eight, leading down to final whisperings, all are among the happiest of inspirations. End quote. It will be noticed that most of the piano works of Schumann, which we have mentioned, are series of short pieces. Some of the series, notably the Papillon, the Carnival, and Chrysleriana, are held loosely together by a literary idea. The twenty little pieces which constitute the Carnival have, moreover, an actual relation to each other in that all of them contain much the same melodic intervals. Three typical sequences of intervals, which Schumann called sphinxes, are the groundwork of the Carnival, but very subtly disguised, that Pierrot, Athlequin, the Valse Noble, Florestan, and Papillon are thus closely related, is likely to escape even the careful listener, and these are perhaps the clearest examples. But this device of sphinxes and other devices for uniting a long series of short pieces really accomplish Schumann's purpose. On the other hand, they never give to the works in question the broad design and the epic continuity of the classical sonata at its best. The Beethoven sonatas, Opus 101 and 110, for example, are carved out of one piece. The Schumann cycles are many jewels exquisitely matched and strung together. The skill in so putting them together was peculiarly his, and is the more striking in that each little piece is separately perfect. In general, it may be said that Schumann was at his best when working on this plan. The power over large forms came to him only later, after most of his pianoforte music had been written. The two sonatas, one in F-sharp and one in G minor, both belong to the early period, and both, in spite of most beautiful passages, are, from the standpoint of artistic perfection, unsatisfactory. In neither are form and content properly matched. Exception must be made, however, for the Fantasia in C major, opus 17. Here, what are uncertainty and insincerity becomes an heroic freedom by the depth of ideas and the power of imagination which so found expression. The result is a work of immeasurable grandeur, unique in pianoforte literature. After his marriage to Clara Wieck, Schumann gave most of his attention to music for voice and for orchestra. In this later life belongs the concerto for piano and orchestra. No large concert piece in all piano literature is more truly musical and less factitious. No large work of any period in the history of music shows more economy in the use of musical material and means. In it, Schumann is as completely sincere as in his smaller pieces, and in addition, reveals what came more into view in his later years, the fine reserve and even classic sense of fitness in the man. Mendelssohn as piano composer is universally known by his Songs Without Words, a title which he invented in accordance with the fashion of the time. Like all the rest of his music, these pieces are less highly regarded now than a few decades ago. Modern music has passed far beyond the romanticism of the first half of the last century, and the songs without words, with all their occasional charm, have no one quality in sufficient proportion to make them historical landmarks. They are never heard on concert programs. Their chief use is still in the instruction of children.
Their finish and fluidity would not plead very strongly for them if it were not for the occasional beauty of their melodies. They remain chiefly as an indication of the better dilettante taste of the time. And as Mr. Crabiel has pointed out, we should give generous credit to the music which was engagingly simple and honest in a time when the taste was all for superficial brilliance. But Mendelssohn as a writer for the pianoforte is at his best in the scherzos, the so-called elf or kobold pieces, a type in which he is in his happiest and freshest mood. One of these is a battle of the mice, with tiny fanfares and dances, all kinds of squeaks, and runnings to and fro of a captivating grace. Another is the well-known Rondo Capriccioso, one of his best. In these fairy pieces, Mendelssohn derives directly from Schubert and the Moment Musical. In the heavier pianoforte forms, Mendelssohn had great vogue in his day, and Berlioz tells jestingly how the pianos at the conservatory started to play the concerto in G minor at the very approach of a pupil, and how the hammers continued to jump even after the instrument was demolished. 4. The quality of the musical taste which Chopin and in part Liszt were combating is forcibly brought out in the recollections of the life of Moschel, as quoted by Dr. B. Quote, the halls echo with jubilations and applause, he says and the audiences, especially the easily kindled Viennese, are enthusiastic in their cheers, and music has become so popular and the composition so banal that it seldom occurs to them to condemn shallowness. The dilettantes push forward, the circle of instruction widens the cheaper and better the pianos become. They push themselves into rivalry with the artists in great concerts. From professional piano playing, and they often played at two places in an evening, the artist took recreation with the good temper which never failed in those years. The great singer Malibran would sit down to the piano and sing the rataplan and the Spanish songs, to which she would imitate the guitar on the keyboard. Then she would imitate famous colleagues, and a duchess greeting her, and a lady so-and-so singing Home Sweet Home, with the most cracked and nasal voice in the world. Falberg would then take his seat and play Viennese songs and waltzes with obligato snaps. Moschel himself would play with hand turned round or with the fist, perhaps hiding the thumb under the fist. In Moschel's peculiar way of playing, the thumb used to take the thirds under the palm of the hand. End quote. The piano recital of modern times was then unknown. It was not until 1838 that Liszt dared give a recital without the assistance of other artists, and it was not Liszt's music so much as his overshadowing personality that made the feat possible then. Chopin, coming to Paris under excellent auspices, had little need to make a name for himself in the concert hall under these conditions, and, as we may imagine, had still less zest for it. He was chiefly in demand to play at private parties and aristocratic salons, where he frequently enough, no doubt, met with stupidity and lack of understanding, but where, at least, he was spared the noisy vulgarity of a musical vaudeville. Taking the best from his friends and selecting the excellent from the atmosphere of the salons which he adorned, Chopin went on composing, living a life which offers little color to the biographer. By the time he had reached Paris in 1831, he had several masterpieces tucked away in his portfolio, but, though perfectly polished, they are of his weaker sentimental style. The more powerful Chopin, the Chopin of the Polonaises, the Ballade, the Scherzos, and some of the preludes, was perhaps partly the result of the intimacy with George Sand, whose personality was of the domineering masculine sort. 
but more probably it was just the development of an extraordinarily sensitive personality. At any rate, it was not long after his arrival in Paris that Chopin's creative power had reached full vigor. After that, the chronology of the pieces counts for little. They can be examined by classes and not by opus numbers, except for the posthumous pieces following Opus 65, which were withheld from publication during the composer's life by his own wish, and were meant by him to be burned. They are, in almost every case, inferior to the works published during his lifetime. The works, grouped together, may be summed up as follows. Over fifty mazurkas, fifteen waltzes, nearly as many polonaises and certain other dances, nineteen nocturnes, twenty-five preludes, twenty-seven etudes, four ballades, four scherzos, five rondos, three impromptus, a versus, a barcarolle, three fantasias, three variations, four sonatas, two piano concertos, and a trio for piano and strings. All his works, then, except the Polish songs mentioned in the last chapter, are written primarily for the piano, a few having other instruments in combination or orchestral accompaniment, but the vast majority for piano alone. The dances are highly variable in quality. Of the many mazurkas, some are almost negligible, while a few reveal Chopin's use of the Polish folk manner in high perfection. They are not a persistent part of modern concert programs. The waltzes, on the other hand, cannot be escaped. They are with us at every turn in modern life. Theorists have had fine battles over their musical value. Some find in them the most perfect art of Chopin, and others regard them as mere glorified, superficial salon pieces. Certainly, they concede more to mere outward display than do most of his compositions, and the themes sometimes border on the trivial. The posthumous waltzes are like Schubert's in that they are apt to be thin in style, with occasional rare beauties interspersed. Of the remaining waltzes, the most pretentious, such as the two in A-flat, are extremely brilliant in design, offering to the executant, besides full opportunity for the display of dexterity, innumerable chances for nuance of effect, which are, of course, frequently abused, so that the dances become disjointed and specious caricatures of music. The waltz in A minor is far finer, containing the true emotional Chopin, by no means undignified in the dance form. No less fine is the hackneyed C-sharp minor waltz, in which the opportunities for legitimate refinement and variety of interpretation are infinite. These waltzes retain little of the feeling of the dance, despite the frequent buoyancy of their rhythm. Chopin was interested in emotional expression and extreme refinement of style. It mattered little to him by what name his piece might be called. The Polonaises are a very different matter. Here we find a type of heroic expression which Liszt himself could not equal. The fine energy of the military polonaise in A major is universally known. The sound and fury of this piece is never cheap. It is the exuberant energy of genius. Even greater, if possible, are the polonaises in F-sharp minor and in A-flat major. No element in them falls below absolute genius. All of Liszt's heroics never evoked from the piano such superb power. The sick and pathological Chopin, which is described to us in music primers, is here hardly to be found, only here and there a touch of moody intensity which is, however, never repressive. The Chopin of the waltzes and nocturnes would have been a man of weak and morbid refinement, all the more unhealthy because of his hypersensitive finesse. 
But when we have added thereto the Chopin of the Polonaises, we have one of the two or three greatest, if not the very greatest, emotional poet of music. The Polonaises will stand forever as a protest against the supposition that Chopin's soul was degenerate. The traditional sick Chopin is to be found ipsissimus in the nocturnes, the most popular with the waltzes of his works. In such ones as those in E-flat or G, the sentiment is that of a lad suffering from puppy love and gazing at the moon. From beginning to end, there is scarcely a bar which could correspond to the feelings of a physically healthy man. Yet we must remember that this sort of sentiment was quite in the fashion of the time. Byron had created of himself a myth of introspective sorrow. Only a few decades before, the Werther of Goethe's novel, committing suicide in his suit of buff and blue, was being imitated by lovesick swains among all the fashionable circles which sought to do the correct thing. Chateaubriand and Jean-Paul had cast their morbid spell over fashionable society, and this spell was not likely to pass away from the hectic Paris of the thirties while there were such men as Byron and Hine to bind it afresh each year with some fascinating book of verse. From such an influence, a highly sensitive man like Chopin could not be altogether free. There is something in every artistic nature which can respond sympathetically to the claims of the morbid, for the reason that the artist is a man to feel a wide variety of the sensations that pertain to humanity. No one of the great creative musicians of the time was quite free from this morbid strain. In the sensitive, retiring Chopin, it came out in its most effeminate guise. But the point is, it did not represent the whole of the man, nor necessarily any essential part of him. It was the response of his nervous organism to certain of the influences to which he was subject. Chopin may have been physiologically decadent or psychologically morbid. It is hardly a question for musicians. But his music, taken as a whole, does not prove a nature that was positively unhealthy. Its persistent emphasis of sensuousness and emotion makes it doubtless a somewhat unhealthy influence on the nerves of children. But the same could be said of many of the phases of perfectly healthy adult life. And, whatever may be the verdict concerning Chopin, we must admire the manner in which he held his powerful emotional utterance within the firm restraint of his aristocratic sense of fitness. If he has sores, he never makes a vulgar display of them in public. The preludes have a bolder and profounder note. They are the treasure house of his many ideas which, though coming from the best of his creative spirit, could not easily find a form or external purpose for themselves. We may imagine that they are the selected best of his improvisation on his own piano, late at night. Some of them, like the prelude in D-flat major, the so-called raindrop prelude, he worked out at length with conscientious regard for form. Others, like that in A major, were just melodies which were too beautiful to lose, but were seemingly complete just as they stood. The marvelous prelude in C-sharp minor is the ultimate glorification of improvisation with all the charm of willful fancy and aimlessness, and all the stimulation of a sensitive taste which could not endure having a single note out of place. The preludes are complete and unique. A careful listener can hear the whole twenty-six successively and retain a distinct impression for each. This is the supreme test of style in a composer, and in sense of style, no greater composer than Chopin ever lived. The etudes deserve their name in that they are technically difficult, and that the performer who has mastered them has mastered a great deal of the fine art of the pianoforte. 
but they are the farthest possible from being etudes in the pedagogical sense. It is quite true that each presents some particular technical difficulty in piano playing, but the dominance of this technical feature springs rather from the composer's sense of style than from any pedagogical intent. Certainly these pieces could not be more polished, or in most cases more beautiful, whatever their name and purpose. They may be as emotional as anything of Chopin's, as the revolutionary etude in C minor, which tradition says was written in 1831 when the composer received news of the fall of Warsaw before the invading Russians. The steady open arpeggio of the bass is supposed to represent the rumble of conflict, and the treble melody alternately the cries of rage of the combatants and the prayers of the dying. But for the most part, the etudes are pure grace and pattern music, with always that morose or emotional undercurrent which creeps into all Chopin's music. The peculiar virtue of the etudes, apart from their interest for the technician, consists in their exquisite grace and freedom combined with perfection of formal pattern. In the miscellaneous group of larger compositions, which includes the ballade, the scherzos, the fantasias, the sonatas, and the concertos, we find some of Chopin's greatest musical thoughts. The ballades are the musical narration of some fanciful tale of love or adventure. Chopin supplied no program, and it is probable that he had none in mind when he composed them. But they tease us out of thought, making us supply our own stories for the musical narration. They have the power of compelling the vision of long vistas of half-remembered experiences, the very mood of high romance. The scherzos show Chopin's genius playing in characteristic perfection. They are not the fairy scherzos of Mendelssohn, but vivid emotional experiences, and Schumann could well say of the first, how is gravity to clothe itself if jest goes about in dark veils? Though they seem to be wholly free and fantastical in form, they yet are related to the traditional scherzo, not only in their triple rhythm, but in the general disposition of musical material. Traces of the old two-part song form, in which most of the scherzos of Beethoven were written, are evident, and also of the third part, called the trio. On the other hand, elaborate transitional passages from one part back to another conceal or enrich the older, simpler form, and in all four there is a coda of remarkable power and fire. The fantasy in B minor, long and intricate, is one of the most profoundly moving of all Chopin's works. It leaves the hearer panting for breath, as though he had waked up from an experience which had sapped the energy of his soul. As for the sonatas and the concertos, Chopin's detractors have tried to deny them any particular merit, or any excellence except that of incidental beauties. The assertion will hardly stand. Chopin's strength was not in large-scale architecture, nor in what we might call formal form, but the sonatas and concertos have a way of charming the hearer and freeing his imagination in spite of faulty structure, and one sometimes feels that, had a few more of them been written, they would have created the very standards of form on which they are to be judged. The famous funeral march was interpolated as a slow movement of the B-flat minor sonata, with which it is always heard. Liszt's eulogy of this may seem vainly extravagant to our materialistic time, but it represents exactly what happens to anyone foolish enough to try to put into words the emotion stirred up by this wonderful piece. Chopin, as we have said, played little in public. He said the public scared him. When he did play, people were wont to complain that he could not be heard. They were used to the bombastic tone of Kalkbrenner. 
Chopin might have remedied this defect and made a successful concert performer out of himself, but his physical strength was always delicate, and his artistic conscience, moreover, unwilling to permit forcing or grossness, so he continued to play too softly. The explanation was his delicate finger-touch, coming entirely from the knuckles except where detached cords were to be taken, when the wrists, of course, came into play. Those who were so fortunate as really to hear Chopin's playing had ecstasies of delight over this pearly touch, which made runs and florid decorations sound marvelously liquid and flute-like. No other performer before the public could do this. Chopin's pupils were in this respect never more than pupils. People complained on hearing Chopin's music played by others that it had no rhythm, that it was all rubato. The inaccuracy of this was evident when Chopin played his own compositions. For the melody, the ornament of the right hand might be rubato as it pleased, but beneath it was a steady, almost mechanical operation of the left hand. It was a part of Chopin's conscious method, and it is said that he used a metronome in practicing. The point is worth emphasizing because of the way it illuminates Chopin's fine sense of self-control and fitness. No technical method was ever more accurately suited to its task than Chopin's. He grew up in the atmosphere of the piano and thought piano when composing music. He then drew on this and that piano resource until, by the time he had ended his short life, he had revealed the greater part of its potential musical possibilities, and always in what he had needed in the business of expressing his musical thoughts. With him, the piano became utterly freed from the last traces of the tyranny of the polyphonic and chorale styles. But he supplied a polyphony of his own, the strangest, eeriest thing imaginable. It was the combination of two or three melodies, widely different and very beautiful, sometimes with the harmonic accompaniment added, sometimes with the harmony rising magically out of the counterpoint, but always in a new manner that was utterly pianistic. Chopin carried to its extreme the widely broken chord, as in the accompaniment to the major section of the funeral march. But it was in the art of delicate figuration, borrowed in the first place from Hummel, that Chopin was perhaps most himself. This, with Chopin, can be contained within no formula, can be described by no technical language. It was inexhaustible, it was eternally fluid, yet eternally appropriate. It somehow fused the utmost propriety of mood with the utmost grace of pattern. Even when it is most abundant, as in the F-sharp major nocturne, it never seems exaggerated or in bad taste. Harmonically, Chopin was an innovator, at times a radical one. Here again, he seemed to appropriate what he needed for the matter in hand and exhibit no experimental interest in what remained. His free changes of key are graceful rather than sensuous, as with Schubert, and, when the modulation grows out of quasi-extemporaneous embellishment, as in the C-sharp minor prelude, it melts with an ease that seems to come quite from the world of Bach. The later mazurkas anticipate the progressive harmonies of Wagner. Much of his manner of playing, as well as the notion of the nocturne, Chopin got from the Scotchman, Field, who had fascinated European concert halls with his dreaming, quiet performance, and with the free melody of the nocturne genre which he had invented. From Hummel, as we have said, Chopin borrowed his embellishment, and from Kramer he chose many of the fundamentals of pianistic style. From the Italians, Italian opera included, he received his taste for long-drawn, succulent melody. In the composer of Norma, we see a poor relation of the aristocratic pole. 
Thus, from second- and third-rate sources, Chopin borrowed or took what he needed. He was surrounded by first-rate men, but dominated by none. He took what he wanted where he found it, but only what he wanted. He was constantly selecting and rejecting. Therein, he was the aristocrat. This is the place to make mention of several writers for the piano whose works were of importance in their day and occasionally today appear upon concert programs. Stephen Heller, slightly younger than Chopin and unlike the Pole, blessed with a long life, wrote in the light and graceful style which was much in vogue, yet generally with sufficient selective sense to avoid the vapid. About the same can be said for Adolf Henselt, 1814-1889, whose etude, If I Were a Bird, still haunts music conservatories. His vigorous concerto for piano is also frequently played. William Sterndale Bennett, who after his student years in Leipzig became Mendelssohn's priest in England, wrote four concertos, a fantasia with orchestra, a trio, and a sonata in F minor. His work is impeccable in form, often fresh and charming in content, but without radical energy of purpose, precisely Mendelssohn's list of qualities. Finally, we may mention Joachim Raff, 1822-1882, writer of a concerto and a suite, besides a number of smaller pieces which show programmistic tendencies. End of section 21